Our scripture reading this morning is going to be taken from Matthew chapter 8. Matthew chapter 8. We're going to sort of hopscotch through this chapter, reading uh, several verses, but I'll tell you the verse just before I read it. So Matthew, Matthew's Gospel, the first book of the New Testament, and we'll be reading several verses throughout this chapter. We'll begin with Matthew 8 and verse 2. And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. Verse 6. Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. Verse 13. And to the centurion, Jesus said, Go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. Verse 17. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. Verse 22. And Jesus said to him, Follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. Verse 27. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this that even winds and sea obey him? And finally, verse 34. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. This is the word of God. Thank you, Larry. Well, it's good to see you, church, this morning, and looking forward to being back in God's Word with you. Let's uh, take a moment before we um, dive in and let's pray. Lord, we have been swept up in your worshipful presence by the songs that we have sung this morning. And we confess that there is no Savior like you. And and I want to hang there for a moment in my preaching. I want to hang there over this reality that there is no Savior, no, no God like you. We love your sovereignty. You act and no man can reverse it. But we not only have this sovereign God at our disposal, but he is our savior. And more than that, he is our friend. So God, help come, I pray this morning. Help me to say the things that ought to be said and that you would set us on a trajectory of worship this morning. Make us humble, strong. Make us full of love and power as a church for your glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, the book of uh, Matthew is where we're at. If you're just here with us for the first time, welcome. Um, I'm Jonathan. I'm one of the pastors. We're glad to have you. Uh, we're working through the gospel of Matthew. And the book of Matthew is all about King Jesus. Now, who he is and what he is doing on earth in human history. There is a lot of movement in this book. It's like Mark, the gospel of Mark in many ways. It's a very fast-paced book. It's moving and, uh, and you feel like Jesus, there's an urgency in the air. The environment of Matthew is kind of urgent. You feel this, uh, this weight of, of expectation throughout the book. And, and it's moving. It's fast. And you feel like almost like Jesus is in a hurry. Jesus is not sitting around sort of perched up on a rock somewhere waiting for people to come up and speak to him. He's moving. He's on mission. He's doing things. He's making things happen. And after preaching the greatest sermon ever, which is where we've been the last three weeks, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus comes down from the mountain after, and he performs a series of miracles. 
And just in this one chapter in front of us, a leper is healed, a paralyzed man is made well, a woman who is sick with a fever is restored. Jesus stops a raging storm and he casts out several demons. And all that is in our chapter right here this morning in front of us. And so the point of Matthew 8 then is to show us that Jesus has absolute authority. And if he has absolute authority over all these things that we just talked about, all these miracles, then that means he has absolute authority over our lives as well. And so the ultimate point Matthew's going to push us to is that if Jesus can do all these things, expressing his lordship, then he is demanding your allegiance. He's calling you to serve him. Now, the purpose of these miracles is to bring glory to God. It's to say that God is among us, that God did this, that Jesus is Lord. And so this is good news for a sin-stricken world that is fraught with sickness and struggle and disease and suffering. I mean, whether it's cancer or tornadoes or some other calamity or disease or death, Matthew wants us to see that Jesus has authority over it all. And once we see that, then it's only logical for us to conclude that he has authority over our lives as well. There is not a square inch on God's universe, including us, that he does not have complete, total, sovereign authority over. And that's where Matthew is leading us. And so we see four things this morning. Jesus' authority over disease, disciples, disaster, and demons. All right, that's where we're going. Disease. Disciples, disaster, and demons. In verses 1 through 4, Jesus heals this culturally outcast leper. Uh, in, in 5 through 13, he heals an ethnic outsider, a Gentile. In 14 through 17, he heals the socially marginalized, demon-possessed people who were on the outskirts of town. Jesus is going after the marginalized. I love this about Christ. He's going, he's targeting outsiders and social outcasts. And, and that should give us hope this morning. It's beautiful to see. And when, when the Bible speaks about hope, uh, it is not talking about some sort of speculation. It is complete and total confidence in God who steps into our mess and all that it is. And he does something about it. And that's what gives us hope. And Jesus starts this morning with, with a leper. Verse 2. And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him saying, Lord, if you will... You can make me clean. Uh, I love this. I love how Jesus, after preaching this sermon, comes down off the mountain. And the first person to approach Jesus after this amazing sermon is this leper. This leper who doesn't even belong there. Who's not even supposed to be in the area because he's supposed to be in his leper colony. But he comes out and this man who epitomizes physical and spiritual uncleanness. This man who epitomizes all that was wrong and all that was sick in this world. Lepers were ostracized by society. They lived in colonies. They were considered repulsive. They were unclean. They were considered cursed by God. And, and to touch a leper would to make yourself unclean. If you touched a leper, you were unclean. And so there isn't a worse person in the world at this moment for Jesus to be mingling with in a crowd than a leper. If, if Jesus cared at all about his reputation, but this is the point. Jesus doesn't care about his reputation. He's altogether different than us. The, the leper makes his confident statement. Look at verse 2. He says, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. He, here's a man who is utterly rejected and disdained by society. And yet, because he is desperate, he is he's determined to find Jesus. Let me just pause here for a moment. And, and and say this, some of you, some of you will never get healthy because you refuse to be desperate. You refuse to be desperate. You, you're, you're happy. You want to maintain your image. You want to maintain all that, all the facade of what people think you are. And you're not willing to get desperate. And therefore, you can't get healthy. And here's a man who says, man, to the wind with 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 my image, I'm already so messed up. I'm desperate to find Jesus and I'm going there. And if I'm not allowed in the city, I don't care. I'm going to push people out of the way. I am getting to Jesus. There's a desperation about this man. And, and he's struggling to find Jesus. And so so don't get upset with me this morning, but just hear me that you, you're maybe it's maybe it's your marriage. Your marriage is never going to change because you're not desperate enough. 
Or, or you're more concerned about maintaining an image in society than addressing the brokenness that's inside. Or maybe it's another sin. Maybe it's something else. You would rather keep up this image about yourself and hide the mess than have that broken image put in front of other people and save your soul. And, and one of the lessons we learn here is, hey man, don't be worrying about your image. Be worrying about what's on the inside. Be worrying about the spiritual matter that's really at stake here. Find Jesus. Go for him. Pursue him with desperation. So I just want you to be honest with yourself this morning. And, and let me ask you this question very personally. Where's the mess in your life right now? I mean, if, is there a storm somewhere? Is there a mess in your life right now that you can put your finger on? Where is it? What is that mess? Because, listen, there's no image management in this dude. This guy's not trying to keep up a reputation, an image, or anything else. He is doing whatever it takes to get to Jesus. And notice the respect that he shows him. When he comes before Jesus, he kneels. This is a statement about worship. And then he calls him Lord, which is an acknowledgement of his deity. And then he expresses confidence in Jesus by saying, if you will, you are able to do so. So therefore, he is expressing the power of Jesus. And then he defers to Jesus. Much like Jesus said when he was in the garden, not my will, but your will be done. The leper says to Jesus, he says, if you are willing, are you willing to Jesus? In other words, if you're not willing, you know, I'm still going to be okay, but I'm going to ask. I'm going to ask. I'm going to pursue you. And so he defers to Jesus. Ability is not the issue. I love the hope in this man's voice. Look at his pursuit. He's got to get to Jesus. And my question for us this morning is, are you desperate like that? Some of you are low on hope. You've come here this morning and, and you're lost, you're confused, you're tired, you're worried, you're, you're so overwhelmed, you're so anxious, you're so discouraged, you're so disappointed, you're just shattered. Maybe there's a situation in your life right now and you can't afford another bad piece of news because you're paper thin right now emotionally. You're paper thin in terms of your ability to process all the dark and difficult circumstances in your life. And you know, the second somebody says something negative, it's like it just crushes you. And you're just so thin right now. And you've hit rock bottom. And Jesus is saying to you this morning, bring your desperation, to bring your brokenness to him in desperation. Just come. Just bring all the mess. Bring all the brokenness. Just come to him in desperation. And look at Jesus' response in verse 3. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him. Now, Now, let's be honest. That was a bad, bad move. From the standpoint of a, from a human perspective. I mean, Jesus, every Jew knew the Levitical code that to touch a leper was to bring uncleanness on yourself. But here's the thing. Jesus did it on purpose. Just think about the intentionality here. He didn't have to touch this guy. It's not like Jesus was saying, Hey, uh, is there any way that I can do this, this whole healing thing without having to put my hands on this man? Is there any way that we could just kind of speak a word and heal this guy? It's not like Jesus is saying, where, you know, have him stand at, at 10 or 15 feet from me and I'll just sort of talk to him. And, and oh, by the way, where's the hand sanitizer? Jesus isn't saying that. No, he, he knew Leviticus 5.3. And yet he willingly and purposely touched him. Just feel the heart of your Savior this morning. This is powerful. You know what this is? This is a foretaste of what Jesus did for us on the cross. 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who had no sin to be sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus took our shame on himself, our filth on himself, our sin upon himself, in order to make us cleaned. I'm so grateful that Jesus is willing to touch dirty people like you and me. And that's what gives us hope this morning. In touching this man, Jesus was declaring, here's what Jesus is saying. He, Jesus touches this man and he's saying, I'll touch anybody that I created. I'll, I'll touch any, any man or woman that I created, including a leper. And some of you, somebody this morning needs to hear that this morning, that you are so regretful of what you have done and who you've become. I mean, you're sitting here this morning thinking, man, I have ruined my life. I have wrecked myself. I have done so many foolish things in life. 
God must hate me. He must have no desire to be even near me or around me. And you're so regretful of what you've done. And the guilt and the shame are crushing you this morning. And some of you are involved in stuff, hear me, right now that you have no business being involved with. And you know the guilt and the shame of it. And yet, and yet, what you're hearing, hopefully through the Spirit of God as I'm preaching, is you're hearing the voice of the Lord Jesus graciously calling you to get away from that. To step away from that. To run not from Jesus, but to run to Jesus because Jesus likes to touch dirty sinners. So if you're filthy this morning and you're polluted because of how you live this week or your sin or what you did, Jesus is saying, just come, man, just come, because I will touch dirty, sinful, wicked, messed up, broken people, and I will make them trophies of grace. That's what's going on in this passage. So don't run from Jesus because you're afraid he hates you. Run to Jesus. Let the And... and, and and if you're a Christian here this morning, you've been saved. What I want to say to you is that if he's delivered you, then open your mouth. Proclaim his riches and his grace. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Amen. Amen. Scream his name. Shout his name. Confess his greatness. Look, I'm convinced that we are far too private in our expressions of Christianity. Um, is that is that. But here's the thing. Don't let your friends and neighbors and workmates think that you have arrived where you have arrived in this good place in life because of your skill and your strength. Let them know that Jesus pulled you out of the ditch and he rescued you and he raised you up. Give him the glory. Let him know it's not your skill. Let them know it's not your skill. It's not your strength. It's not your family. It's not your money. It's not your personality. It's not. The good luck that you had in life or the fortuitous start that you got because you had a rich family. It's Jesus and he rescued you out of total trash and total filth. And he brought you to the place that you are today. So this is what we see in this leper. Well, in 5 through 13, Jesus heals a paralytic. And this just gets better and better. In verse 5, we said we read when he had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him. Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home and he's suffering terribly. Now, the centurion would have been a military commander of at least 100 uh, soldiers. The Romans were obviously, as you know, the most powerful people in the world at this time. And yet here's the amazing thing. This guy cares about his servant. That's kind of odd for a Roman centurion to really care about one of his servants. Second thing is that he approaches Jesus with great respect. This is interesting. He, he, he comes up to Jesus and he asks Jesus to show his servant mercy. And what does Jesus say? Verse 7. Jesus says, I will come and heal him. Now, this is also breaking the mold for Jesus because a devout Jew would not even go into the home of an unbelieving Gentile. In fact, as soon as Jesus offers to come to the centurion's home, what does the centurion say? He knows this. He says, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. Notice he calls him Lord. Here's a Roman soldier, the big boy. And he calls Jesus Lord. And he says, I'm not worthy. I think we're dealing with something a little bit more than than, than a mere man here. We're dealing with God. And he says, Lord, I'm not worthy to come under your roof. Just say the word and my servant will be healed. What faith? What faith? He knew that Jesus didn't have to touch him. He knew that Jesus could just say a word. Which, by the way, makes it all the more remarkable that Jesus touched the leper. Because if he just says a word to heal a centurion's servant, then he could have just said a word to heal a leper. But he wanted to touch the leper. Verse 10. When Jesus heard this, he marveled. And what did he say? He said, I have not found anyone in Israel with such faith. See, the centurion knew what it was like to have authority over something. Verse 9. He's a commander, right? So he says, I say to one, go, and he goes. I say to one, come, and he comes. And here's what he, here's, here's the point here. He believes that Jesus has that same kind of authority over disease. To say, go, and it goes. And, and so, and so he can, Jesus can say to sickness, Go and it's gone. Jesus can say be healed to paralysis and it's gone. Jesus can say leave and cancer is eradicated. And how comforting is that for us this morning? Big time. And he continues this work of healing in 14 through 16. Why did he do this? Well, verse 17 tells us. 
Look at 17. Note the words of Isaiah here. This, all these healing, this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. In other words, Matthew applies Isaiah 53 to the physical healing ministry of Jesus while on the earth. Every miracle of healing or deliverance from demonic oppression was a fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy that Jesus would come, hear this, to preach good news to the poor, to proclaim liberty to captives, to recover the sight of the blind, and to set the oppressed free. And Jesus has come, and he has broken into human society, and he's doing all that work of healing, all that work of liberty, all that work of recovering people and setting the oppressed free. And you know what? He's still doing that work, and that's why you have confidence that when you are sharing the gospel with your neighbors and your family and your kids and your parents and your cousins and your aunts and uncles, that Jesus loves to set the captives free. And he's working on that, and so you have great hope this morning that he is going to be at work in your life. But here's what I want to say to us this morning, just kind of as a family thing, as a as an encouragement, as a challenge to us as a church, is that Jesus is, I want to make sure we're very clear on this, Jesus is still in the business of healing people physically. And, and I want to take a moment on this because some of you, some of you, while motivated by what I would consider to be a love for God's word and a purity for his church have a really, really hard time talking in categories of divine healing and supernatural manifestations because you're afraid of charismatic excess. But I would caution you this morning not to quench the work of the spirit. Because look, even... Even if you believe that the so-called, quote, sign gifts ceased in the first century, the Holy Spirit did not cease. The third person of the Trinity did not die with the last apostle, praise God. That means that as Christians, we can, and I would argue we should, affirm present-day miracles without having to affirm miracle workers. God is a miracle worker. God continues to heal. The problem is that while many of us say things like, you know, God can heal, functionally speaking, we act as if he won't. And that's a problem. And I'm telling you, it creates a warped spirituality, a warped Christianity. And one of the first things it'll warp in your Christianity is your prayer life. Because it'll cut the power right out from underneath it. You just sit around thinking, you know, well, God will heal if he wants to. Well, I know God is sovereign, and so, you know, I mean, what's the really, what's the use in praying? Because I can pray a few times, but God's going to do what God's going to do. And of course that's true theologically, but the burden and the point of passages like this is to get you praying with passion and with power, knowing that Jesus still heals people. And what I'm trying to encourage you this morning to do is don't default in a negative sort of sick and twisted way to the sovereignty of God in such a way that you cut his power and his present day work. Because both realities are true. God is totally sovereign and God is totally willing and able to heal and he still does. So we must hold these things together. So hear me this morning. There is not a stitch of evidence that these manifestations of God's power and willingness to heal are no longer available for us today. And there are several reasons for this. Several. Let me throw out to you several. First, God has not changed. God's immutable. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is just as able and willing to heal today than he is that he has ever been. Number two, his newer and better covenant has not changed. Think about this. In the Old Testament, sickness was considered an Old Covenant curse and healing was considered an Old Covenant blessing. Uh, let me give you a couple of scriptures on that. Exodus 23, 25 says, Worship the Lord your God and his blessing will be on your food and water. I will take away sickness from among you and none will miscarry or be barren in your land. I will give you a full lifespan. Deuteronomy 7, verse 12. If you pay attention to these laws and are careful to follow them, the Lord will keep you free from every disease. He will not inflict you, inflict on you the horrible diseases you knew in Egypt. And that's why David comes along in Psalm 103. And what does David say? David says, 
Praise the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your sins and who heals all your diseases. And that's a very specific Hebrew word for physical sickness. And then we have that prophecy in Isaiah that's fulfilled in Matthew, which is directly related to physical healing. So all this is under the old covenant. Now, hear this. Understand this. Now we have a better covenant founded on better promises, which is Hebrews 8, 6, which says so. So if sickness, hear this, was an old covenant curse and healing was an old covenant blessing, is it possible now somehow that under the newer and better covenant, sickness has somehow become the blessing and healing the curse? Of course not. Of course not. The third reason that I would provide is this, is that the needs of man have not changed. We're just as messed up and sick and broken as we have always been. It is really, really sad to hear people say things like, God is not healing today, or even worse, I don't personally know anybody that said this, but I've heard it. I've heard it in terms of its just general um, ethos. I don't know. Any, I don't have any friends that have said this, but I've heard this. Something to the effect of, you know, all supernatural manifestations of healing come from another spiritual force. In other words, if somebody's healed, that's not God. That's some kind of demonic activity. I've heard things like that. You you hear that and you say, what a terribly misguided thing to say. That would mean that in the Gospels, while it was the devil who often made people sick, think about the demoniac and demon possession and other things, and Jesus made them well, that today somehow God is the one making them sick and the devil's the one making them, them well. How preposterous is that thinking? It's absurd. Can anyone imagine Jesus coming to the bed of a sick little girl with her parents praying by her side, crying out, Lord, touch her, Lord, touch her. And Jesus lays her hands on her only to make her sicker. I mean, can you imagine the very notion of that as blasphemous? So here's what I want to say to you. Just because you haven't seen maybe a supernatural divine manifestation of God's healing does not mean that God is not doing that. Your experience is so limited It is so small. Do not interpret the Bible based on your very limited experience of things. Instead, interpret the, instead, bring your experience and all that you have to the Bible. James says this. James says, is anyone among you in trouble? He should pray. That certainly has not changed. Is anyone happy? Let him sing songs of praise. This hasn't changed either. Is anyone of you sick? He should call the elders of the church to pray over him and anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord and the prayer offered in faith, not the oil. The prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well and the Lord will raise him up. And that, my friends, has not changed either. So let us dispense once and for all with this notion that Jesus was healing in the Gospels, but he's no longer healing today. To talk that way is to grieve God's spirit. J.C. Ryle says, Jesus is touched with a feeling of our infirmities. He is never tired of doing us good. He knows we are weak and feeble. And he is just as ready to help us today as he was then. And praise God for that. We have some people here this morning who are sick. They're terminally sick and they're unwell. And of course we know that God can choose not to heal But let it not be that a person is not healed because we are faithless people. How dare we be such faithless people? We should pursue it. We should pursue it and ask God to be gracious. Well, in verses 18 through 22, we see Jesus, his authority over disciples. Two men approach Jesus. The first one says, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. It sounds like Peter It's interesting. I'll do whatever you want me to do. I'll follow you wherever you go. And then the other one says to Jesus, he says, well, he says, Lord, just let me go first and bury my father. So these two guys are sort of pretend disciples who are trying to position themselves for discipleship. And here we see the great cost of discipleship. But neither of these men understood what discipleship really is. The first guy is naive. He's over eager. He's overzealous. And the second guy has divided affections. 
So two major problems with discipleship. One guy's overzealous, does not understand it. The other guy is completely divided in his heart. Both of them were no doubt caught up with all the miracles that Jesus was doing, everything that was happening. And here's what Jesus essentially tells them. He says, guys, guys, look here. Y'all, you guys are just fans. You just saw all that I did, all the miracles, and you're just following me around. All right? You're just fans. And But know this, that if you want to follow me, know this, the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. So kind of as like a wake-up call. I don't even I don't even have a place to lay down at night. So are you are you really sure that you understand what this whole discipleship thing's about? Because it's going to incorporate day one, no slit, no 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 place to lay your head, just day one. So let's just be clear about what you're asking for, and how many church going people in our culture are just fans, just fans of Jesus. Think about it. I mean, they just get caught up in the hype. It's a network of relationships. It's a place to be recognized, maybe for your gifts or who you are in the community or the city or whatever. And Jesus is helpful to me. I get something out of Jesus. Makes me feel good about my life and Jesus is good for business and I like that and, and hoorah for Jesus. All right. Jesus helps me. And I like it. And think about this. After feeding the 5,000, what happens? Jesus feeds 5,000 people with, with a few pieces of bread and fish. And after doing that, he says, you are seeking me not because you believe in me, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. In other words, he's saying, Jesus, you, you just turned me into something that's useful to feed my belly. But Jesus did not come to be useful. Jesus came to be precious to our hearts. Or another way to put it is, Jesus didn't come into the world to assist you in meeting desires that you already had before you were born again. He came to change your desires, which is through the new birth, to make you a totally new person so that he becomes the main desire, not all the things that you desired before you came to know Jesus. He didn't come to, to, to make you feel really good about all the things you loved before you loved Jesus. But so many prosperity preachers, they stand up and they preach to your desires, your natural, fleshly desires that you have from birth. And they stand up and they tell you that Jesus came to give you more of that, more of what your flesh craves. Well, he didn't. That's not what Jesus came to earth for. He came to change those desires profoundly. He came so that he becomes the central desire. He is the gift. He is the thing. He is the treasure that we want. But you see, these guys in 18 through 22 did not understand true discipleship. I think the first guy is the rocky ground disciple. If you read the parable of the sower. And we'll get to that in Matthew 13. But the rocky hearer is this one. The one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet, he, see, notice this, he receives it with joy. This guy's eager. Yet he has no root in himself. He endures for a while. But when tribulation or persecution arise on account of the word, immediately he falls away. In other words, as soon as he finds out that, I, oh, the Son of Man has no place to lay his head, I'm out. I mean, gone. Rocky ground here, right there. Boom. He didn't count the cost. But here's the thing. Jesus is worthy of our greatest sacrifices, is he not? And we must be willing to give up earthly security and comforts if we want to follow him. I mean, that's just, that's discipleship one-on-one. Give up, be willing to give up, sacrifice, and lay down your life to follow him. The second guy, I think, is the thorny ground disciple. Thorny ground hearer in, in the parable of sower. This is the one who hears the word. But the cares of the world, and hear this, the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and it proves unfruitful. He has a divided heart. You say, well, I don't see any the deceitfulness of riches here. Oh, I do. Think about it. Look at the text. He says, let me go and bury my father. And scholars universally across the board believe that what he is saying is this, is that his father's not dead, not dead at all. His father is totally alive. But he wants to wait till his father is dead so he gets his inheritance. And then when he gets his inheritance, he'll go and follow Jesus. In other words, let me wait till my father dies and then I'll bury him and I'll get my inheritance. And then I'll follow you, Jesus. And Jesus is saying to him, man, if that's the way you want it, if that's the case, then listen to me. Let the dead, that is the spiritually dead, bury their own dead. 
Go do that, man. You do it. You're spiritually dead. You go live your life, and then you go get your inheritance and bury your, your dead father. But you won't have me. That's what Jesus is saying. It's, a, it's so powerful. Jesus is and always will be more important than family, more important than inheritance, more important than possessions. And Jesus is saying, and those who don't believe that, well, they're just not qualified to be my disciple. David Platt says this. He says, Jesus is not begging for followers in Matthew 8. He's actually turning them away because he warrants unconditional trust and undivided affection from those who follow him. Man, that's a stark reality that he's actually turning people away. And that's what's happening here. There's no such thing as recreational discipleship. There's no such thing as part-time discipleship. You're either, according to Jesus, you're either all in or you're just out. All in or you're just out. You don't play this game with Jesus. He's not going to have it. Discipleship begins in the heart. And here's the question for you. Does Jesus have your heart this morning? Now, he has your rear end in the seat. My question is different. Does he have your heart? You're here, but I'm telling you, being here isn't enough. And I, I trust you know that. He wants your heart. Does he have that? Well, moving forward in verses 23 through 27, Matthew turns to Jesus' authority over disasters, or we could say nature. Jesus has authority over the physical world, and he is Lord over nature. The promise of this passage is not that Jesus will calm the storms of your life, but that he will walk with you through those storms. Jesus says, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. Our security in life does not depend on good circumstances or a storm-free existence, but from the fact that when the storm comes, we are not alone, but Christ is with us in the boat. So that would be the key application to take away from this section. Make note of this, that the storm came... This is so interesting. The storm came because they obeyed Jesus. What happened? Jesus tells them, get into the boat. Jesus gets in the boat. They follow him in the boat. And then the storm comes. And I want to make a point about this. Because a lot of times people think, well, if the storm hit my life, it must be because I sinned. The storm hit that guy's life. He must be in sin. Or something must have happened. And God is disciplining him. Now, that's exactly what happened in Jonah. Okay? But here, this is a mistake. If you say that the experience that Jonah had, every time a storm comes, that this is a Jonah experience. That's not true. Sometimes storms come because you're just simply obeying Jesus. Jesus says, get in the boat, and a storm hits. And how much of the Christian life is like that? I mean, you're just being faithful. You're just going through your Christian life. You're trying to serve Jesus. You're, you're being faithful. You're doing all that you can. You know, and, and, and you're praying and you're confessing your sins and you're doing the hard thing. And, and after all that, the toilet backs up. It does. And you're like, what, where did this come from? I'm being faithful. I'm doing all these things. And, and you say, Jesus, and you're, you're hurting and the storm is intense and you cry out to God and you say, Jesus, now would be a really good time for you to come through. Right now, Jesus, this is, this is your moment. I need a miracle. I need you to step in. I need you to come through. Make note of this, though. Here's Jesus sleeping on a boat. N note this. The posture of Jesus did not match the disciples' circumstances. This is also very, very insightful if you think about the text. Jesus is on a pillow asleep, according to Mark. Same, sort of the same story told in Mark. He's asleep on a pillow. The disciples are scared to death. And what I'm saying is that the posture of Jesus laying down asleep does not match the circumstances of the disciples. Afraid for their life. Now, when you first hear that, you think, okay, so I thought Jesus was supposed to identify with me. I thought Jesus was supposed to relate to me. And here he is asleep, confidently resting in, in God, and he's totally unable to identify with the disciples. 
And see, see, we like to talk about how Jesus identifies with us, that he's our older brother, and he does identify with us, praise God. And he is our older brother. But trust me, you do not want a Savior who responds like you when you are in the midst of a storm. You want a Savior who's unaffected by the storm. You want a Savior who does not act like you when you're under trial and under pressure and under duress. When all hell breaks loose, we need someone bigger than us and greater than us and altogether different than us to come to our rescue. And that's who Jesus is. And I'm so glad he's not like me. See, Matthew's leading us to worship here. Verse 27. The conclusion is, what kind of man is this? That even the wind And the seas obey him. See, this event is meant to elicit worship in our hearts. It's meant to stir your heart and your affection for Jesus. The disciples are awestruck as they realize that the man in the boat with them is not a man at all. He's God. This is the God man with them. Jesus is God in that he has authority not only over disease and discipleship, but he has authority over disaster over the nature, over over the physical realm. Well, finally, in verses 28 through 34, we see Jesus' authority over demons. And so we're, we're flying through this. I mean, there's just so much here. We could stop and really camp on each one of these a lot longer. I mean, each one of these is really worth a whole sermon. But this is the last section. We see Jesus has authority over demons Not only just over the natural realm, but over the spiritual realm. This is a comprehensive authority. In this account, what we have is two men who are violently demon-possessed. Have you guys ever known anybody that was demon-possessed? It's just a question. Maybe you wonder if you, in a previous time of your life, were possessed demonically. Man, that's a reality. When I travel overseas and I go to India, I see this stuff with my own eyes. We don't see it as much here because the devil operates in a very subtle way in America. He sucks you in through entertainment and through music and through and through comfort and through pleasures of this life and through drugs and through women and through whatever pleasures that you're experiencing. And 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 so it's very subtle and we get allured. We get we get we get lured away. But here's the thing is that in India and in other Eastern cultures, the the activity of Satan is like right in your face. There have been situations where I've been preaching in Indian churches and seen guys convulsing on the floor, rolling around, foaming at the mouth. Saw that guy run to, to choke a pastor in his throat. I mean, just, just incredible expressions of demonic possession. And it happens all the time in these Asian and Eastern countries. And so, but, but, but it's very much here as well. And the question that I'm asking is that, you know, have you have you felt this? Have you known this? Have you been around this? And here's the thing that, that's so interesting about this. Two men violently possessed by demons, and yet these demons, these demons are deathly afraid of Jesus. I love this. The same demons that scared everybody else in the city. Everybody's afraid of these men. They, they don't even get near them because they're so violent and dangerous. But the second Jesus walks up, they're scared to death of Jesus. I mean, just frightened. Notice how they respond to Jesus, how they acknowledge his authority. Verse 29, they call him the son of God. They recognize that he's God. In verse 29, they're afraid of being, quote, tormented by Jesus. In verse 31, they know that Jesus has authority and the ability to cast them out. In verse 31, they ask permission for Jesus to send them into a herd of pigs. What do they do in 31? They beg him. Now, what kind of what does that say about them? To, that they're begging Jesus. Then in verse 32, Jesus does cast them out, showing that he has the ability to do it. And all these demon-possessed pigs, all these demon-possessed uh, demon, demons go into this herd of pigs, and they run down the mountain, and they drown themselves. And then the whole city comes out to meet Jesus. And then what does the city do? The city begs Jesus to leave because they discern his power. And they just, they're scared. They're frightened. They're terrified of any man that can walk up to a legion of demons and cast them out into a herd of pigs and cause them all to drown. And you would be too. You would be absolutely terrified to see Jesus in that context. Terrified. And he's asserting his absolute lordship. So Matthew 8 leaves us with no doubt that Jesus is the son of God. With all authority in both heaven and on earth. 
And there are several things that we learn here from this, this sort of, these last few verses. First thing, this is stating the obvious, but it needs to be said. There is a demonic world. There is a demonic world, and you need to be aware of that. Verse 28. And that should go without saying, but it has to be said. Because we're not often very perceptive of its reality. The demonic world is all around us. And because of that, I would caution you about a few things. Number one, do not open yourself to demonic activity. Do not do that. You say, how, how do you do that? Well, I, can, I tell you a way you can do it is by not taking care of unrepentant sin. By, op- by sinning openly and progressively and by not repenting of that. And because here's the thing is that the devil can use that as a stronghold and leverage that. The enemy of our soul hovers around disobedience. So as you're moving through your day, your week, when you disobey and there are patterns of disobedience, that's where Satan will attack. That's where, that's where demonic influence gets its, 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 its sway. Demons are drawn to disobedience. Just like honey, just like, um, you know, bees are to honey. There's just, there's just disobedience. Bam. Do not open yourself up to demonic activity too. Just because you're a Christian does not mean that you're free from demonic activity. I, I don't know if anybody thinks that, but just, just to be clear, I do not believe that a Christian can be demon possessed. I think the Bible is pretty clear about that, that you can't as a Christian be demon possessed. But I do believe that a Christian can be led away, can be deceived, can be tempted, can be harassed, and can be hurt by demonic activity. And if that's the case, then just know and understand that just because you're a Christian does not mean that you are free from demonic activity. It's very serious. And number three, so be careful. Be careful about what you watch, what you listen to, what you participate in, because there are pockets of darkness all around. Some of the things that that we watch and listen to, some of the environments that we go to are spiritually very, very dark. And you may be opening the door for demonic activity. How can you tell? Well, I think there's a few marks. Number one, I think a mark of demonic activity is this, is that it typically robs a person of sanity, measures of sanity and self-control. There's a lot of irrational behavior associated with demonic activity. Just crazy stuff, just irrational. Number two, often a person is, is filled with irrational fear. They're afraid for no reason. Sometimes they're terrorized, even immobilized, unable to move. Often it leads to isolation, pulling away from other people, isolating yourself. Third, it's, it's associated with dark and sinister activity. This may include dark thoughts, nightmares, very sick and distorted ideas, environments where open wickedness is condoned. And, I, and I'm telling you, those are marks. Those are all classic marks of demonic activity. So... That's the first implication of these verses is that there's a demonic world. Beware. I'm just telling you, beware. Be on the lookout for that. Second, notice that Satan's power is limited. Verse 31. Um, We can praise God and thank him for that. So the Bible says that Satan is like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. But John, the apostle John, tells us that he who is in us is greater than than he who's in the world, which means the devil is on a leash. And at any moment, Jesus can jerk him back. So Satan's power is limited. Third, Jesus is the one who delivers us from from the power of darkness. Verse 32, he redeems us not only from our sin in this present world, but he redeems us from the devil. And here's the great thing is that on the cross, the head of Satan was crushed in the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus. Which means his power and his influence are limited and Satan's days are numbered. And that's great news for us again. So his power is limited. Jesus delivers us from the power of darkness. And and, and, and so here, let me just apply this in a, in a, in a sort of a, a context for, for your daily life is that I'm not a person who likes a lot of formulas. I mean, I don't feel comfortable with a lot of a a lot of spiritual formulas and things of that nature i mean they're weird and some of them are strange and unhealthy but here's one that i absolutely follow and practice consistently when i feel like 
my family or I are being attacked, I absolutely and always feel complete and total freedom and just a, even a desire to rebuke that in Jesus' name. And I would just encourage you to think through that practice because I have learned to invoke the name of Jesus, his person and lordship, in, in ways that I think is entirely appropriate and I would argue even wise in certain situations. Every time I go to India, every time, I either have these terrible nightmares before I leave or while I'm there, the, the first or second night that I'm in there, that I'm in India, I'm having these dreams that my wife is being raped, that my kids are being kidnapped. Terrible, terrible dreams. And I woke up one morning next to my friend Andy when we were in India, and he looked over at me. He goes, how'd you sleep, brother? And um, I said, uh, terrible, terrible. And um, before I could say anything else, he said, did you have agitating dreams? And I said, yeah, I did. I said, they were like nightmares. He goes, brother, that's just part of the course. He said, you just, you just gotta, we just gotta pray, pray through that. He said, that happens all the time. It's consistent. It's consistent. But I've noticed that because this has happened a number of times in my life, I've noticed a couple of things that are helpful. Number one, it, it is always, always helpful to say, whatever's going on, I rebuke that in Jesus' name. Christ is Lord. He's sovereign over this. And, and I rebuke this right now in Jesus' name. Second thing that's been so, so helpful is to turn on worship music. There's just something about it. I, I'll, I'll put on some music that is so Christ-exalting, and it's like, man, everything flees. It's like all that agitation, that oppression, that darkness, that it's just, it's just gone. It just dissipates because Satan hates that. You think he's going to sit around and listen to Christ-exalting worship music? There's just something that's expulsive about that. It just, just get, get it out of here. So some of you are probably sitting there saying, I have no idea what you're talking about, man. I can't relate to this. And if that's true, I'm glad. But I'm telling you, when you're doing frontline ministry and you're being attacked, this stuff is real. And there's, there's nothing hooky uh, or goofy or, or abracadabra about praying things in Jesus' name. Sometime I'm going to walk you through the book of Acts um, because the beginning part of Acts, there's this, there's this thing that you guys need to be aware of that is in theological terms we call name Christology. What is done in the name of Jesus? And as you look through Acts, for example, Acts chapter 2, Peter said, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ. Chapter 3, verse 6. But Peter said, I have no silver or gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, Nazareth, rise and walk. You get to chapter 3, verse 16. To this we are witnesses, and his name, by faith in his name, he has made this man strong. And he says, you see and know in the faith that is through Jesus, chapter 4, verse 2, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. Verse 7, and when they had set them in the midst, they inquired them, by what power and by what name did you do this? Verse 10, let the people know to all of you and to all the people in Israel that by the name of Jesus... Verse 12, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name. Verse 17, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. Verse 18, so they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. Verse 23, and when they heard it, they lifted their voices together with God and said, Sovereign Lord, they invoke his name. Verse 30, while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant. And I'm just in chapter 4. And it's just like name of Jesus, name of Jesus, name of Jesus, name of Jesus. And I know here's the thing is that we listen to TV preachers and we think, man, they, these guys need to quit invoking the name of Jesus. Always name of Jesus, name of Jesus, name of Jesus, name of Jesus. And you see all these charismatic excesses. And what I'm saying to you is, is just because somebody's abusing it doesn't mean that you, therefore, should just cut it out of your vocabulary and terminology. How crazy is that thinking? It's scriptural. 
Now, can it be abused? Absolutely, can, it can be abused. And it's really abused with prosperity preachers who are claiming everything in Jesus' name. I claim this in Jesus' name, and I claim this in Jesus' name, and I claim this in Jesus' name. That's not what I'm preaching this morning. What I'm saying is, is that when there is demonic spiritual activity that's hurtful to, to your soul and to your family and to Christ's kingdom, you think that that's not appropriate to invoke the name of Jesus? Like, what? Are you a Christian? We're Christians. That's what we do. We pray to Jesus. Of course we invoke his name. So I just, I hope this is corrected for some of you because the thing is, is that we can just become so just, just wigged out by people that are not like us that we, we just toss the whole thing out. And that's just a mistake. All right. And finally, here's the thing. Notice the unbelieving world response to the city. Verse 34. They come out to meet Jesus. And this is, this is just so crazy. It's like the end of Jonah, they, where the whole city gets saved and has this massive revival. And then Jonah sits there and he sulks. And he's like, I'm just so mad that the city got saved. And you see the same thing here. It's like this. Jesus, so the, the city comes out to meet Jesus. And it's, do they fall on their knees and worship? Nope. Nope. Instead of falling on their knees and worship, they send him away. They send him away. Two men were just delivered from Satan's bondage. Like the two most notorious demonic possessed men in a city were just delivered and you sent the guy away. You sent him away. And all they can think about is the fact that their pigs are dead. Their pigs got drowned. And and, and that Jesus is disrupting the city and we don't need a guy here who's going to stir things up. No, I think you do need a guy who's going to stir things up. Because he's kind of stirring up some salvation and he's stirring up freedom and he's stirring up liberty and he's, and he's saving people out of darkness and sin and destruction. Oh yeah, you need a guy to come in here and stir a lot of things up. <laughs> but here's the thing. He who has eyes to see and ears to hear will not see Jesus as disruption. They'll see him as a glorious interruption. Oh, come and interrupt me all you want, Jesus. Come into my life and into my mess and into all this junk and feel free to interrupt as much as you want because I need your deliverance. Did you notice the question the demon shouted in verse 29? They said, what have you to do with us, O son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? They know their time's coming. You see, they knew a day was coming when they'd be fully and finally judged by the Lord and cast into utter darkness As believers, we look forward to that day because it'll mean leprosy and paralysis and fevers and natural disasters and demon possessions will be no more. The authority of Jesus will finally be asserted. The kingdom will be here in its final form. And so we cry out as a church, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. But if you're not a believer, you're not crying Maranatha. You're saying, please delay Lord Jesus. Because I need more time to get right with you. And my question to you is this, is if you're here as an unbeliever, what are you going to do with the Son of God? You're not going to send him away, are you? Surely not. You wouldn't send him away, would you? I hope you wouldn't send him away. C.S. Lewis was a master with words. I don't know if you've ever read the Chronicles of Narnia, but the, the, the sort of the, the, the big, uh, most popular, famous book in that series is The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And in the line, which in the wardrobe, chapter four, the children go through this wardrobe and it opens up into the world of, of Narnia. And there's an evil queen who owns this city and it's filled with ice and coldness and darkness. And the creatures who live there are all animals. And one of the animals that lives there is Aslan. Aslan is a lion. And, the, and, and, the, and these guys know that only Aslan can save them. And so the children are like, wanting to inquire about Aslan. Who's Aslan? And so they ask Mr. and Mrs. Beaver several questions. Let me, let me end with this. Tell us about Aslan, said several voices all at once. For once again, that strange feeling like the first signs of spring, like good news had come over them. Who is Aslan? Aslan, said Mrs. Beaver. You don't know about him? He's the king. He's the lord of the whole wood. He is in Narnia at this moment. And he's the one that will save us. You'll understand that when you see him. Is he a man? asked Lucy. Aslan? A man? (laughs) Certainly not. Don't you know he's the king? Aslan is a lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan. I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. 
Oh, that you will, and make no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can stand before Aslan without their knees knocking together, they're either braver than most or else just silly. Then, then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mrs. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Friends, life is not safe apart from God. But here's the thing. Proverbs, Psalm 25, 8 says, Good and upright is the Lord. Good is the Lord. And he will instruct sinners in the way. Matthew 8 is that voice of God to you this morning. What will you do with the Son of God? What will you do with him? Let's pray. Lord, we praise you. We worship you this morning with thanksgiving in our hearts. That though you are not safe, you are good. And so we come to you, this all-consuming fire, this holy transcendent God. And we come not, certainly our knees are buckling, of course, on our own. But we come in the power and blood of Jesus. We come, we have access to you through him. And so we stand, we dare not stand in front of you on our own accord. We stand in the name of Jesus. And we love you, Lord. And we pray that you would be see fit this morning to save some who are here who do not know you. And they would feel your warm invitation. And that they would come into your presence through Jesus. They would acknowledge their sin and that you would save them. Thank you for this text. Thank you for the assertion of your authority. And that gives us a rock to stand on this morning and we praise you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. stand and worship one last time. We're going to sing Jesus paid it all the course in the bridge. Jesus paid What a joy to uh, worship Jesus with you all this morning. I'm so thankful uh, for your hearts and love for God. So we have everything to, to just glory in today. So I just encourage you that as you leave, let's leave celebrating the authority, the power, the greatness, the goodness of God. And enjoy your week to the max, knowing that if your sins are forgiven, then you're free. And uh, just sell out for him. Give it all to him. Jude says, um, now to him who's able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory and majesty and dominion and authority before all time, now and forever. Amen. Go in peace. Amen.